over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Um, if I'm a little rusty this morning, uh, you know, I haven't preached here in four weeks. That's amazing. And I was here three of those weeks, which is really amazing. So, um, but uh, praise God that uh, um, for his word. And uh, we're starting a new section in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. We're, we're getting to chapter 11. Um, but before we actually look at our, our text this morning, I, I want you to remember a couple things and just kind of way of review, review where we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, the focus of Matthew's Gospel, the essential question that he wants answered, is who is Jesus Christ? That's, that's the whole purpose of this book, is to show us who Christ is. He's asking that question. For ten chapters now, we've seen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew has told us, chapter after chapter, who Christ, who Jesus Christ is. He's presented him as the Son of God. He's presented him as God incarnate. He's presented him as the King, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ. He's presented him as the Savior of Israel. He's presented him even as the Savior of the world. And over and over and over again, he has reiterated that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the living Lord, the Son of God. And so in the effort that Matthew has made to do this, he's, you might think of him as a lawyer bringing in people to testify in court. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of testifying under oath in court. Um, I done it a couple times when I was with the DA's office down in Riverside County. And one time, the first time, I had to go in and testify that I actually gave this guy a subpoena as a witness to a certain case. He was saying he never got it. I had to go in and I sit out in the hall because you're not allowed to be part of the, the, the proceedings. You sit out in this hall and then a little clerk comes out and says, okay, Mr. Congress, we're ready for your testimony. You walk in and they do the whole swearing in thing. You sit in this little booth. And it's a very kind of a unnerving thing. And then you give your testimony. Well, that's basically what Matthew has been doing. He's been giving testimony after testimony. He's been tapping into every effective witness to the claims of Christ in the first ten chapters. For example, in chapter 1. I think these are in your notes. He gave the testimony of history. We see that the genealogy and the ancestry that points to Christ as the Messiah. It testifies to his virgin birth. It tells how he was uniquely born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then there's the testimony of fulfilled prophecy in chapter 2. We went through that. Christ fulfilled the Old Testament predictions in detail. Nobody else has done this, beloved. Chapter 3 is the testimony of John the Baptist, who we're going to look at a little bit this morning. A prophet of God, a man filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, mind you. And he came on scene and said, this is the Messiah. In chapter 3, we also see the testimony of God, the Father, who looks down from heaven and at Jesus Christ's baptism says, this is my beloved Son. Chapter 4, we see the testimony of power by Jesus himself as he defeats the arch enemy, Satan. 
And then in chapters 5 through 7, we see the testimony of his words. We see the t- his truthfulness, the power and the authority of what he said as he verifies his claim. And then in chapters 8 through 9, we saw the testimony of his works, incredible works. He was healing people. He was casting out demons. He was raising the dead. He was forgiving sin. All of those things testify to who Jesus Christ is, to his deity, that in fact he is God. Finally, in chapter 10, over the summer, we've been learning in the past few weeks here the testimony of his own disciples as they were trained, as they were taught from the Savior himself. And they were so convinced that Christ was who he said he was, that he was the Messiah, that they were willing to pay the dearest price. They were willing to give up their lives for Christ. So Matthew has laid out all this tremendous evidence before us and before the people. And it's almost as if they've been called into a courtroom to testify who Jesus Christ is. And as he approaches chapters 11 and 12, he changes his purpose. It's no longer to necessarily to testify about who Christ is, although he does that in some cases. The whole purpose changes as we enter into chapter 11. And it's important to understand this. If you don't understand this, some of the things we're going to read, you're not going to get. But based upon all the testimony that he just gave us in the first ten chapters, now he asks the question, what is the reaction of those who have heard and seen this testimony? Matthew deals with that in in chapters 11 through 12. What is the reaction of those who have heard the testimony about Jesus Christ? And he gives all kinds of different reactions. It's interesting when you track it through. And, and, and just for example, you see there in, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 15, we're going to be looking at the response of doubt. Some doubted these claims. In verses 16 to 19, you see a response of criticism. They were critical. In verses 20 to 24, there's a response of indifference. And then you begin to go into chapter 12, verse 20, or Verse 1 through 21 deals with the response of rejection. They rejected these claims. 22 and 23, amazement. 24 and 37, the response of blasphemy. Verses 38 to 45, the response of fascination. So you see all these responses and you say, well, why do you leave out chapter 11 at the end and chapter 12 at the end because at the end of each one of those chapters there's a positive response. Those were all negative responses. But there is a positive response at the end of each of those chapters. A response that's the right response. A response of faith. And so he's covering in chapters 11 and 12 the whole horizon of responses to these claims. And as we go through chapter 11, you're going to see these different responses creep up. But the first one he deals with is the response of doubt. The response of doubt. And that's what we're going to look at in the first six verses of Matthew chapter 11. Let me just read these for us, and we'll become familiar with them. And then we'll stay a little, lay a little groundwork, and then we'll look at the text. It says in... Verse 1, chapter 11. Now it happened to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. 
And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and he said to him, in other words, he said to, they said to Christ, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see and the lame walk, the lepers and are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. I apologize for the sound system. We're just having a problem with it, so I'll just have to talk louder. But don't turn this up, because if I talk louder and he's got it jacked up, you're going to go through the roof. So, Anyway, the first response is a response of doubt. When the New Testament talks about doubt... This is very key to understanding what we're going to talk about this morning. When the New Testament talks about doubt, it's always talking in reference to those who claim to be believers. You would think it wouldn't be that way. You'd think that unbelievers would be the ones that he talks about doubting all the time. But he doesn't. The New Testament doesn't. Whenever it raises the issue of doubt, it always talks about the idea that it's believers who are doubting. doesn't matter if it's in the, in the Gospels or in the Epistles. It primarily focuses on believers. And that's very important. It's almost as if the Word of God is saying, you know what, you have to believe something before you can doubt it. Isn't that true? You have to be committed to something before you can begin to question it. So doubt is held up as a unique problem of the believer. There's only one time in the Gospels when it relates to unbelievers. Only once. And when it does, it uses a word that means to be held in suspense. It's a term that's used nowhere else in the New Testament. But normally, it's used in reference to believers. Now, I say that to you to encourage you. Well, what do you mean? Well, I don't know about you, but I doubt. Doubt is a big part of my life sometimes. I don't hear any amens. I must be the only one. See, if we're honest and you're sitting here this morning, we all doubt. We doubt a variety of things when it comes to our walk with God. but it's always something that occurs in the life of a believer. In fact, the illustration in Matthew 11 that we read about here in the first six verses, it says that it even happened in the life of John the Baptist. Now, if you think John the Baptist was some willy-kneed, you know, weak-kneed, wimpy Christian, jump down to verse 11 and look at what Jesus says about John the Baptist. Just so we have it all on the, the right field here. This is what Jesus Christ said about John the Baptist. Among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than who? John the Baptist. And yet John the Baptist had doubts. So if the greatest man that lived up to this time had doubts, I don't know about you, but I'm a little comforted by that. 
So doubt is basically a problem that is encountered by believers. Over and over, examples of this throughout even the Gospel of Matthew, we constantly see Jesus turning to his disciples who've been following him faithfully. And what's he constantly saying to them? He's saying, oh, you of little what? Faith. The redoubting. On some occasions, he even says, how long will you doubt? These are his followers. These are men who spent time physically with Christ. Jesus said to them in Matthew 21, 21, if you have faith and doubt not, you will not only do this to this fig tree, but he goes on to say that you will even move mountains. He had to continually remind his followers not to doubt. If you turn even all the way back to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, you think by now they would have gotten it, right? I mean, they got 28 chapters of truth. Look at what it says in Matthew 28, verse 17. This is at the end. This is basically at the conclusion of everything concerning the testimony of Christ. Christ has come. He's died. He's been resurrected. He went back to heaven. And this is talking about his believers, his followers. It says in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him. But what? Some doubted. Even after they've seen everything, they still doubted. In Luke 12, 29, Jesus says, Seek not what you eat or drink, neither be of doubtful mind. That word doubt comes from a Greek word. We get the English word meteor from it. Meteor. And it means to be suspended in space between two points. Suspended in midair. It's used in Obadiah 4 in the Septuagint when it talks about eagles flying through the air. He says, don't be hung in midair. That's what he's saying. But get your feet firmly planted. God said to Peter in Acts 20, in reference to taking the Gospels to the Gentile, Peter was having some doubt. He said, don't doubt, trust me, believe. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul said, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands, praying, and what? Not doubting. James says, as we read this morning, if you doubt, you're like a divided man, unstable in all your ways. So doubt is a matter that belongs in the life of the believer. It shouldn't be there. But it is. It's just reality. And so we're not so shocked when we see the one who Matthew is using as an example. The one who Jesus is using through Matthew as an example of John the Baptist. There's none greater than him, and yet he doubted. Let's look at this passage in Matthew 6. Matthew 6. And we'll just kind of walk through this this morning or Matthew 11 I'm sorry Matthew 11 what am I thinking <laughs> Matthew 11 1 to 6 is where we're at first verse there now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples when it came to pass in other words all this stuff happened in chapters 1 to 12 and now it's kind of a, a new a new chapter in the book Something fresh is happening here. What went on in chapter 10 
is that he taught them, he trained them, he prepared them to go out into a lost and dying world to share the gospel, to represent him. And he knew ultimately they would be sent out. Here they're just sent out on a little, kind of a two-week little missionary journey, kind of like a short-term mission. But ultimately they're going to be sent out totally by themselves when he's totally gone from the earth. And it was very critical that they get things right. I mean, can you imagine them getting everything wrong? We probably wouldn't be sitting here today. So it was very important to Christ that they understood what they were to teach. It was very important to Christ that the foundation was laid. And that's what he spent time doing. He had invested time in them. But now they were ready for their first training mission. And so he sent them out to go and to carry on the things that he stated to them in chapter 10. What jumps out to me from that verse is simply this. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. I think so many times in our churches today that we don't get that. We don't get what that means. So we come week after week and we sit in a chair and we soak in the Word of God as it's taught to us. And then we leave and we go home and we go to work and we get caught up with all the worldly activities throughout the... And then we come back the next week and we sit in a chair and we soak up everything that's taught to us. And then we, we go through this routine week after week after week after week. We're not giving anything out. See, the purpose of the church is not to bring you here on a Sunday to feed you so you're nice and fat so you can go home and just lay around. The Bible is very clear. Our role as ministers of the gospel of Christ is to what? To edify, to build up, to teach the church, to teach those who belong to Christ so that they can grow in their faith so that then when they walk out these two doors in the back, it's not, okay, church is over, I've done the spiritual thing, that's it. Beloved, when you walk out those doors, that's where your activity begins. You come in here, you sit for 60 minutes while somebody teaches you, and then as soon as you walk out that door, that's when your job begins. That's when your ministry begins. And if you're not fulfilling that, you're going to grow complacent. If you're not giving continually into the life of somebody, you're going to grow lethargic. You're going to grow lazy in your spiritual disciplines. And he doesn't want that to happen to them, so what's he do? He sends them out. They've been taught. He spent time with them. Now he says, now you go and you do what I tell you to do. It doesn't mean they're going to do everything perfectly. See, so many Christians are waiting until they, you know, they memorize all the you know, Ten Commandments and they memorize everything before they can share Christ with anybody. Well, I'm still memorizing stuff. Beloved, trust God. He wants to use you in a mighty way to a lost and dying world where only you have an influence in the sphere of influence in which you have. I don't go to your job. I don't go to your place of employment. Only you go there. And I pray that you take the truth of Christ when you go there with you. And you make it evident to those around you that you believe in Christ and that there is a gospel of good news that talks about grace and mercy and forgiveness. It says there that he had departed from there. 
that is the place where they sent, he, he departed. And it says he went out to teach and preach in their cities. Most, all of the, the disciples were from Galilee. The only one that wasn't was the oddball Judas Iscariot. Everybody else was from the cities of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee there. And so when it says there he went out into their cities, he's talking about the cities around the Sea of Galilee. He sent them out. They're gone. They're on their way. Jesus now is all by himself. He doesn't have his disciples with him. You know, it'd be very easy for Jesus just to go back and kick back. (laughs) Say, hey, my job is done. I trained these guys. I mean, it'd be like me coming in here on Sunday saying, look, this is is all I do. I just get up here and talk for, for 45 minutes. And then, you know, the rest of the week I have off. That's your job. I don't do anything after I leave this pulpit. I mean, that would be so wrong. And Jesus know that, knows that would be wrong. That's why he doesn't do that. He says, okay, those guys are gone. i got to get back to doing what God wants me to do. And that's to teach and to preach. See, any true leader, after having sent people out, after having them under their training, he doesn't just kick back. But he does the ministry too. You've got to lead by example. And so it says that he went out to teach and to preach. And we've looked at this before, so just very quickly, just to remind you of what Jesus' ministry mainly consisted of, teaching and preaching, two different things. Teaching is the idea of passing along information to somebody. The Greek word didasko, we get the word didactic from it. It means to teach somebody. It refers to passing on information. And in this case, it's usually in a formal setting. Back then, in the synagogues, anybody could come in who, who was qualified and stand up and teach. They would open the scriptures, as Jesus did on many occasions, and they would read a portion of the Old Testament, and then they would explain what that meant. In Christ's case, he would read the Old Testament, and then he would say, this is you know, who it's talking about. It's talking about me. And they didn't always get that. But he always taught from a portion of Scripture. He just didn't get up and say, okay, guys, today I'm going to share with you five happy trails to life and go off on some weird little thing. No, he always related it to God's Word. That's why in this church, whenever we open the Bible, whenever someone stands behind this pulpit, they're going to have an open Bible and they're going to be teaching from God's Word because that's where the truth is. That's where the power is. The power is not in my words. Good night. I mean, you'd, you'd, be, you'd be in big trouble if that's all you had. Okay? So that's why I, that's all I know to do is to get up and to speak, teach the Word of God. So it's focused on content. It's focused with the purpose of discovering truth. See, that they weren't used to that in Jesus' day. The Greeks of Jesus' day, the philosophers and all that, basically what they would do is they'd get people together and somebody would stand up and make a statement and then they'd have a big rah-rah session about it. They'd have a big discussion about it. Kind of like the British Parliament. You know, do you ever see that thing on TV? They get up and the guy gets up and boy, I love Tony Blair when he was doing that. He'd get up there and he'd say something. You're not... And they'd start yelling at each other. I'm thinking, man, that's, you know... I mean, somebody smarts off in one of our things to the president. Everybody has a fit. You know, But it wasn't like that. Jesus would not go into the synagogue and say, okay, what do you guys want to talk about? Let's have a discussion. 
He would take the Word of God, he would open it, and he would begin to teach them the truth that he found there. And it's sad today when you see churches saying that, well, you know, this teaching, preaching stuff, that's not for today. You can't hold people's attention. You can't do that. Some churches even believe that you have to have a discussion. You get up and you say something and somebody raises and you have this big dialogue all Sunday morning. It's kind of like if you've ever been to a Bible study and you go around the room and, you know, you read a verse and then somebody says, well, what's that mean to you? You ever been in a Bible study like that? I've been in a Bible study like that. It drives me nuts. So I just want to go, who cares what it means to you? That's irrelevant what it means to you. What does the text mean? Let's find out what it says. Let's find out what it means in the context, and then maybe we can apply it to ourselves. But let's not, you know, John 3, 16. Oh, for God so loved the world. What's that mean to you? Oh, well, and you hear these people go off on these weird tangents. That's not honoring to the Word of God, nor does it help anybody. When we teach, we're to teach with authority because the authority is found in God's Word. He not only taught, but he also preached. Teaching relates to the explaining of the message. Preaching relates to the announcing of the message. Teaching relates to the explaining of the message. Preaching relates to the announcing of the message. Preaching basically is to proclaim truth. And that's where he would do. He would go in the synagogue, he would teach them, and then he would go out in the highways and byways with his disciples, and he would proclaim the truth of God. He would proclaim his kingdom coming. And he also, you might say there in, in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 5, he continues the, the aspect of miracles. He's casting out demons, he's raising the dead, he's forgiving sin, all that stuff. The Lord goes about his work. Even though the disciples aren't there to watch him, even though he could just kick back, I'm sure he was tired, but no, he didn't do that. He chose to continue to honor his father in the task that he gave him. And he continued to serve the Lord in his ministry. Now, as he's ministering, as he's out there in these cities doing these things, he's approached by two of the disciples of John the Baptist. And you say, well, okay, well, I thought Christ, John the Baptist came and said, thou art the Christ, wouldn't he send all his disciples to follow Christ? Well, basically, yeah. But you have to understand, here's John the Baptist. He comes as a proclaimer of the Messiah, And we're going to find out in a little while what happened with him, but he ends up in prison as a result. And so he's sitting in prison, and Jesus is out there ministering. And I'm sure John the Baptist had had thousands of followers that followed him in his day. And some were very faithful to him. So he had disciples that somehow in the prison in which he was in, he was allowed visitors And so his disciples would come, John the Baptist's disciples would come, and they would minister to him. And and so he sent them out with a question to Christ. Two questions, basically. He says, are you the one who is coming, or should we look for another? Are you the one who is coming, or should we look for another? The New King James says, are you the coming one? which is really a, a, a good translation, or do we look for another? This is dealing with John's doubt. I mean, think this guy was the forerunner of Christ himself. He's the one who announced the coming one. 
He's the one who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one who said, I must decrease, he must increase. Speaking of Christ. John had already known Christ. He had already pointed to Christ. He had already baptized Christ, remember? He had affirmed that he believed that Jesus was the Christ. But you know what? There were certain things that crept up in his life that caused him to doubt. This is the greatest man that ever lived up to Jesus' time by Christ's own profession. And so John the Baptist sends two of his disciples. Is this the Messiah? Or should we look for somebody else? It really reflects his perplexity, his doubt. Even though he had already affirmed his faith in Christ, he wanted to know a little more about this. And he continually told people that that Christ back in in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, Jesus is at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and he called Matthew to follow him. And so Matthew, remember, gathered a bunch of sinners together for a big feast. He invited them over, and he's going to evangelize them, basically, and he invited Christ to come. And it says that the disciples of John came to him and asked him a question. See, I want you to understand that even though Christ is on the scene now. John the Baptist is in prison, but his disciples are still free to go out and walk about. And so, by John's own instruction, they're kind of keeping tabs on what Jesus is doing. They're tracking him. They're always back in the crowd, the disciples of John the Baptist. And they're watching Jesus' ministry. They're watching what he does. They're watching what he says. They're watching where he goes. And we see it throughout the Gospels that the the disciples of John the Baptist are always just kind of lurking in the background. In Luke 7, after the raising of a dead son, it says the disciples of John the Baptist reported to to, to John the Baptist all these things concerning him. So when they saw that happen, man, they ran right back to John the Baptist. They said, man, you wouldn't believe what Christ did today. So they were feeding him information. I mean, stop and think about it. You're the, this mighty prophet who comes up, and you're the forerunner to the Messiah, and you're out there proclaiming the Messiah is coming, and then the Messiah comes. And you're kind of off the scene now. You know, John... Basically, it was important to him to understand that he fulfilled his task. He wanted to make sure that he announced the Messiah. He wanted to make sure sure that the one that he announced was indeed the Messiah. So he had his disciples tracking Christ just to make sure, just to follow up. The first question, he says, are you the coming one? Sounds like a vague question. What is he talking about? It's really not. The Jews of Jesus' day would have known exactly what John was talking about. The Greek word erkomai, basically it's it's a participle, and it, it, it refers to these words translated properly. It says, the coming one. Are you the coming one? 
And any Jew in Jesus' time would know exactly what the coming one referred to. It referred to the Messiah. It was, it was a, a title for the Messiah, just like Branch or the Seed of David or King of Kings or Lord of Lords or Prince of Peace. The coming one. Common title for the Messiah. And it's used over and over throughout scriptures. It starts in Psalm 40, verse 7. And even in Matthew 3.11, it talks about the coming one. And it, it goes on. And there's several verses there listed that you can look up. In Hebrews it, 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 uh, 10, verse 37, it refers to the Messiah as the coming one. So the, the Jews totally understood that title. They understood what that meant. And John is asking a very simple question. He says, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that was promised? That's the first question. The second question he has them ask Jesus, or do we look for another? <laughs> so, Jesus, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Are we still to be looking for somebody else? Or are you the one? And he indicates there's some perplexion here. He doesn't understand John the Baptist. John had doubt. And you know what? It's okay. There are some reasons why he had doubt, and we're going to get into a couple of those in a couple minutes. But the thing I love about John the Baptist was when he had doubt, where did he go with his doubts? He went right to the Lord. Even though he couldn't physically go there, he sent people to him. And he's, you got to clarify some things for me. I'm having some doubts. He went directly to the Lord. He went to the right source to have his, dealt, his doubt dealt with. Some people say, well, John didn't believe. That's an indication that he didn't believe. He wasn't a believer. That's not true. Because this question, the way it's, it's, it's phrased, basically you could say it this way. Should I continue to believe what I believe or should I believe something else? That's his question. It's if he's saying, I believe that you're the Messiah. Am I wrong in believing that, Jesus? I mean, in a sense, the very fact that he would go and send his disciples to Jesus indicates that he believed in him. If he didn't believe in him, why would he go ask him? So, in a sense, he's saying, please assure me that you are the Messiah. He just didn't deal with his doubt in himself. He just didn't talk to other people about it. Because that would have probably dragged everybody else down in doubt with him. <laughs> he went right to the Lord. His faith had found a difficulty, a doubt. And you know what? That's what we have to do. When, when we have doubts creep into our lives... We have to do the same thing. We go directly to the Lord. See, John believed. He preached. He expected the Messiah to fulfill all these promises. He baptized him. He had pointed to him and pronounced that he was the Messiah and he was going to decrease and the Messiah was going to increase. And yet he was still confused on some things. I mean, he didn't know everything. There were some things that were predicted even from his own mouth that were from God that may, maybe not have had taken place yet concerning the Messiah. And so he had difficulty looking at the ministry and hearing from his disciples what Christ was doing. And he's saying, wow, is this really the Messiah? Because I was expecting something a little different here. 
In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, it says regarding the prophets that they inquired and searched diligently what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them did signify and what person. In other words, the prophets studied their own writings to figure out what they were saying because they couldn't figure it out themselves. They needed the help of God. He wanted to be sure, John the Baptist wanted to be sure that Christ was the right person, that he truly was the Messiah. And look at how Jesus answers him in verse 4. Interesting answer. Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. (laughs) That's it. I mean, he knew that they were kind of tracking him. He knew that they were following him. They had seen a lot. They reported a lot. So he says, you know what? Go tell him some more. Go back and tell him again what you see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Go back and tell John that. That's basically the credentials of the Messiah. It's interesting, over in Luke chapter 7, verse 21, it's just kind of a parallel passage here. Luke chapter 7, verse 21 They asked the same question in the text before that. It basically, are you the coming one or should we look for another? And in verse 21, immediately after they asked the question, it says, in the same hour. In other words, instantaneously, immediately. Look at what happens. It says, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. It's almost as if, Luke records, it's almost as if the disciples from John the Baptist say, hey, are you the one or do we look for another? And Jesus says, hold on a second. Boom, 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 boom. Does all this miraculous sign immediately. Right in front of these two disciples. It's almost like, hey man, if John hasn't heard about this yet, go tell him what you're seeing now. He did it just for John. Shows you his love for this guy. It wasn't secondhand. They didn't have to hear about it. No, they saw it for their own eyes. And he says, now you go back and you tell John what you just saw. I mean, he just let the power fly. Those are the credentials of the Messiah. And then at the end there in verse 6, he says, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Well, what does he mean by that? It's, it's really a, a gentle rebuke in Matthew. It's a gentle warning. What he's saying is, if you want to be blessed, then don't doubt, don't stumble over me. That word offended is the same word that we get the word scandal from. It means to trap. Back then they would have a little cage and they'd have a stick holding up the trap door and they'd put some food on the stick so when the animal came in to to get the food, the stick would fall and the trap would catch the animal. He's saying, don't be trapped. Don't be held up. Don't be offended by me. If you want to be blessed, don't allow anything I do or anything I say to lure you into a trap of doubt or make you stumble. That's what Christ was telling him there. And he says, don't doubt, because if you doubt, you're not going to be blessed. It's kind of a beatitude, in a sense, because he's saying, blessed is the man who doesn't doubt. 
but trust. tells us that John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived up to this time, and yet he still had some doubts. I don't know about you, but that, that really comforts me. That's basically the idea behind this passage. But there's basically four reasons. We're just going to look at two of them this morning. Why John the Baptist doubted. The first one, the first of these four reasons is difficult circumstances. Difficult circumstances. And these are the same reasons why we may doubt today. They're, they're, they're applicable to us just as they were applicable to John the Baptist. Reason number one, difficult circumstances. I don't know about you, but difficult circumstances tends to make me doubt some things. I mean, if you stop and think of John the Baptist, this poor guy, I mean, the career of John the Baptist, basically, humanly speaking, from a worldly point of view, ended in disaster. I mean, John was this fiery, dynamic, confrontational, bold, courageous preacher. And he said exactly what needed to be said at the exact right time to the exact people that God wanted it to be said to. He never had any fear about it. He didn't care. He was bold. He was aggressive. He was powerful. He had many, many followers. And when he saw sin, he called sin, sin. He didn't, you know take a trip through the tulips with everybody. He, he was just bald. He just threw it out there. When he saw sin, he rebuked it. And when he saw a person in whom there was sin, he rebuked them. I said that he ended up in prison. That, that's why. If you know the story of John the Baptist, I mean, sometimes you have to be careful who you rebuke, right? I think... Uh, there's a congressman or senator, whichever it was, that openly rebuked the president of the United States in a certain setting last week. He's feeling the rebuke right now. He's feeling the, the, the uh, results of that rebuke. You have to be careful. Well, Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, he paid a visit to his brother in Rome, as you know the story goes, and when Herod went to see his brother he kind of had eyes for his brother's wife, so he seduced her. And when he returned home, he proceeded to divorce his own wife. And then he stole his brother's wife, whom he had seduced. And he took her to be his new wife. And he's thinking, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a ruler. Nobody's going to say anything about this, right? Um, and he did it right in public view. So John the Baptist heard about this, and he just didn't write a little anonymous article to Herod saying, by the way, this isn't a good thing you're doing. He went right up to his face, and he told him that he was basically a rotten, vile sinner, and he was an adulterer, and just gave it to him right there. I mean, he could have had him executed. That obviously didn't go over very good with Herod. And Herod proceeded immediately to throw him into prison. And that's how he ended up in prison. Now, if you can think of this poor guy in this dungeon of a prison five miles east of the northern tip of the Dead of Sea and about 15 miles south, there's this old Herodian palace. And that's where they believe that John the Baptist was imprisoned. And this poor guy, I mean, was thrown into this pit 
And, I mean, you think about it. For 18 months, this guy was in the limelight. He was out, had the freedom to go wherever. Thousands of followers following him. He was the forerunner of Christ. He was preaching, teaching, proclaiming. The whole country was coming to him. He was right in the middle of the action. Now he sits in this dark pit all by himself. Probably not even a a window. No fresh air. And you stop and you think, wow, is that how it ends for somebody who serves God? (laughs) That doesn't seem right. He was a true saint. He was a prophet of God. He was great, holy, faithful, selfless, loyal prophet. He had done exactly what God had told him to do, and he had done it well. He had announced the glorious coming of the Messiah, who would make all things right and set up his kingdom. He was even a close relative of the Lord himself. He had been filled with the Spirit Since the time he was in his mother's womb, he had taken a Nazarite vow, which is the highest level of spiritual commitment possible. And you stop and you say, this is this poor guy's reward? Now he's sitting in a a pit, a dark prison? I want you to understand this morning, doubt comes from our inability to deal with negative circumstances, with negative trials. Because we begin to ask the question, if you're the God of all comfort, if you're Christ and you care so much, why am I going through this? doesn't square in our mind logically. I've been faithful. And this is what I get? I'm sure that's what was going through his mind. John must have thought, man, did Isaiah promise and... Chapter 61, verses 1 to 2, that the Messiah, when the Messiah came, doesn't it say that he would free the prisoners and set loose the captives? <laughs> Why am I sitting here in prison? What's going on? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Isn't there a place of blessedness for such a faithful man as I have been? That's what was going through his head. See, and our doubts are no different. They come. Just like that. We convince ourselves that we belong to the Lord and the Lord is going to care for us. And when something goes wrong, what happens? We begin to doubt. God, don't you see what's going on here? Maybe we lose a child to death or unbelief or lose a husband or a wife or a mother or a father or a dear friend or someone gets cancer or has a heart attack or a child is struck by a car, crippled for life. Maybe your business is struggling. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe you can't make ends meet financially. I don't know what it might be in your life, but there's something. I guarantee because it's in everybody's life. When we come to a point and we say, you know what, God? It's not supposed to be like this. 